Okay, thanks. Welcome, everybody. I'd first like to thank the organization for having me here. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dave mentioned that I'm at the University of Amsterdam. That's correct, but I did part of my studies at uh, Portland State University, so some credits to them, too. Um, my paper is entitled Bicycling as a Way of Life. Um, over 70 years ago, Louis Wirth, in his famous essay, Urbanism as a Way of Life, argued that there's a new era, an urban era, that lifestyle is changing significantly, that the society is undergoing a change towards an urban era. And my argument would be that we're seeing the threat at the wake as a similar change with regards to bicycling in cities. So what will I be talking about today? Um, I'll first introduce the topic and uh, come up with a problem statement, give my theoretical insights that are relevant. Uh, I'll introduce my methodology and my cases then I'll come up with the most interesting findings and I'll come up with some conclusions and hope to give up give some takeaways for, for policy too. Okay, well, what you see, as I said, there's a wide increase of bicycling all over the world in Eastern Europe. Here in the UK, in the United States, bicycling is becoming bigger and bigger. Policymakers are finding ways to, to cope with that. How, how do you get a higher mode split? How does it become safer? How do you change gender inequality and so on and so forth? And uh, that was for me kind of a, uh, well, um, that was for me a, a starting point over a year ago. And uh, when I started reading, what struck me is that there are basically uh, two paradigms in, in bicycling. Uh, on the one hand, there's kind of the classical positive approach to bicycling, uh, finding the key determinants of, of bike use. And on the other hand, which we've seen quite a lot of studies of today, there's more uh, cultural approach, case studies, how do you come up with a better understanding of the socially constructed nature of bicycling. And well, I figured, uh, can there be a bridge uh, without throwing away the, the cultural dimension, but can those two be uh, synthesized in one study? So that's what I did. I tried to come up with a notion of bicycle culture, which is sensitive to the socially constructive or discursive nature of bicycling, but also has uh, attention to space, which I think is a crucial component of bicycling. So I, have, I used four central concepts to understand uh, bicycle culture, two micro-concepts and, and two more structural concepts. First, I used spatial practices, which is really the act of bicycling, so uh, the decision to, to bike, how people behave in a certain city, and so on and so forth. The second is the experience and meaning related to bicycling. I think we've seen quite some interesting presentations on that today, how the Bali is experience of bicycling work, but also what is the, the meaning, the symbolic meaning of, of Moiris, for example, vis-a-vis -vis bicycles. So those, those were kind of the two points which I, I really used for my interviews, and then I used two structural components. That's the physical environment, so simply geography, what is the structural power of geography, and mobility culture. And I'll give a bit more of mobility culture now. Uh, I use this definition of Jensen, and he basically said that mobility culture is refers to the official and legal structures in a in a certain society. So uh, liability, for example, traffic regulation, and so on and so forth. It refers to the tacit and, and the bodily experience of bicycling, and it, and it, he makes a distinction between generic mobility cultures, so which can be worldwide or uh, national, for example or uh, more localized mobility cultures. But what I found quite striking, there's no space in, in this definition. Whereas I think part of the mobility culture is also the built environment. So I tried to incorporate that. And um, I found my inspiration 
by someone actually from, from Lancaster, uh, Andrew Sayer was mainly uh, the, the notion of critical realism, which is kind of a, a middle ground between positive science and more cultural oriented studies. And what is really central is that you see structures as having causal powers which can be activated under certain circumstances. So it's, they're not universal causal laws, but under certain contingent and particular circumstances, these powers can be activated. And what you then try to, try to do in, in research is try to map out the mechanisms that are at work. And why I use this, uh, it's, it's a bit, uh, use the term iterative abstraction. It's, it's, it's sometimes a bit fuzzy. But because I had to bridge two completely different contexts, I needed to have kind of a heuristic device to bridge those two cities. So that's that's on the back, kind of the background. And one other, there, there's some more components related to this, but I'll, I'll leave that for now. Another thing is that uh, mechanisms, different mechanisms, can lead to the same outcome. So there's no uh, royal road to high bikes. There there are different ways, and I think that I'll, I'll come to that later. That's pretty important because. Holland, uh, Denmark is, is often seen as the uh, poster child of how you should get a, a bike culture, but maybe there are other ways. Maybe it's not as efficient to take that road. So what did that do? Oh, really? There. Um, it's a it's called a reproductive research strategy. So I, I kind of went back and forth between uh, my empirical data and, and theoretical insights because. There's not, there hasn't been a lot, a lot of work done in this field, so I really had, had to find my way. And um, the, the logic I used, I think I did something wrong with the PowerPoint, but well, this is a nice map though. <laughs> <laughs> um, the logic I used is comparative. I was inspired by, by J.S. Mills, among others, uh, looking at differences and similarities between cases and how a different path can lead to the same outcome on the one hand, or how uh, cities or cases which look the same in, in the beginning can come to a very different conclusion. So that was kind of the way I, I addressed my cases because um, as, as many of you might know, uh, you're, all, you're always kind of uh, biased by your own country and that's what I had when I was uh, studying the Netherlands. For it was really hard to, to look at bike culture in Amsterdam because I've lived there for all my life so it's really hard to, to, to see what is at stake. And that is where it became very useful to have that experience in, in Portland, which made my, my tools uh, sharper, my methodological tools sharper. So what did I do? I did 19 uh, <coughs> semi-structured user interviews, so I talked with bicyclists about their bike use, about their experiences. I asked them basically to tell about how they experienced and what they did while bicycling in the, those two respective cities. And I did 20 self-declared experts. Well. At least some of them think they're, they're experts, others arguably are experts, so I had to buy a lot of coffees, but um, it, made, uh, it gave me a lot of insights in those cities, because I think you need to be very sensitive to your case, and I think that's what, what Sam mentioned that earlier, that's what case study, that's crucial, know your case, so that's, that's what the expert interviews were for. A participant observation, obviously I experienced how it is to ride a bike in both cities, and I did some secondary data analysis, and obviously read on the history and, and geography of both cities. Well, let's go to Portland, Oregon first. Um, as you can see, it's, uh, it's in the northwest of, of the United States. It's pretty pretty famous for its bicycling. Um, it has a mode split of around 8%. In some neighborhoods, 12. I made a little map with concentrations. So uh, the, the concentration of bike users is mainly 
uh, close to the city center, as, as I think in, in most urban areas. And um, it's, it's also well known for uh, its bike subculture. So there's a lot going on with bicycling in Portland. Um, they, they're really trying to become, both in urban planning and in, in cultural events, the leading city in the United States. So uh, I'm having some serious issues with PowerPoint, but again, some nice pictures. Um, <laughs> so what, what they do, for example, with urban and regional planning is there's an, in Oregon, there's a there's an urban growth boundary, so cities are not allowed to grow beyond that uh, delineation. Uh, there's a bicycle master plan, which they try to come to a higher bike mode split, um, and so on and so forth. So there's really a lot going on with bicycling. The city has about 500,000 inhabitants, which is relevant for the uh, comparison. And as I said, and <coughs> as these pictures reveal, there's a, a really lively bike subculture. Um, there, there are moves about bicycling, there's a naked bike ride, uh, there's a yearly, yearly festival, so there's really a lot going on. It's really part of a, of a subculture. So then, then my hometown, Amsterdam, located in the center of the Netherlands. I don't have a nice concentration map, but this, is, this, this shows the, uh, the bike network of Amsterdam. Um, it, is, it is considered by some people the bike capital of the world. Although people from Copenhagen would have a different take on that, so I wouldn't get into that discussion. It has about 750,000 inhabitants. Uh, parking is extremely expensive, which is important to know. And this, the historic core is, is extremely dense. So uh, it is really hard to, to get around by other means of transportation than, than bicycle. Uh, furthermore, the most split is 29% for the city as a whole. But in, in the historic core, the, the most split is about 43%. So that's, that's pretty high. So what I did, I tried to look at the mechanisms with, with regards to bike culture, which were work in both cities. So uh, to find kind of the universalities in both cities with regard to bike culture. So I, I'll, I'll use some quotes uh, to, to be a bit more evocative. Um, this, this is a student from Portland, and it's about informal traffic regulation. So there is, obviously, there are traffic laws, but in, what I saw in both cities is that the conjunction of both discourse and material practices resulted in a new type of mobility culture, an informal way of tra traffic regulation. And uh, the first, uh, I'll, I'll read it out loud, if it's a busy, busy intersection, then I'll come to a complete stop. But if I'm on a back street or residential street, I usually hit my brakes and slow down when I approach the stop sign and look around. So it, it's not allowed in the United States, in most, most states, to, to pass a stop sign, but a lot of people do it. Uh, simply because there are loads of stop signs, the physical environment necessitates people to take back routes, and there are so many stop signs that it becomes kind of hard to stop all the time. You lose momentum, basically. So there's more uh, value of traffic lights compared to stop signs, because there are only a few, and they're on busy roads. So that's, that's kind of a way in which kind of the, the spatial practices and the geography result in a certain, certain type of behavior. Um, again, I think I did something wrong with the PowerPoint. Um, but a, a similar thing, that's what you see in Amsterdam, is it's extremely dense, so the physical environment has some causal potential, and there are a lot of <coughs> traffic lights, but a lot of people simply don't stop. And that is a bit more contested, but this more or less the same mechanisms at work. So since, I've, since I have kids, I'm very careful. I stop for almost every traffic light. I teach my kids all the time not to pass a red light, and then I get surpassed by a lot of people who are like, 
What kind of an idiot is that? And my kid on the back rack asks, Dad, you can pass a red light, can you? <laughs> so that, I think that's kind of a representative for, for the city because it's, it's really a... There's, there's, there's debate about the role of traffic lights, but obviously it's not... Uh, it hasn't a causal deterministic function. So, uh, road choice, um, that is kind of interesting too, because uh, again you see a, an interesting conjunction of uh, the geography and the, the mobility culture in both cities. Um, what you see in, in, in Portland is that people are very aware of the role of the car. The car is really, a, the risk or fear for the car is really dominant in, in making a road choice. And by that, uh, the physical environment, there are a lot of back streets, there are a couple of uh, arterials which people try to avoid. And there you see again that interesting conjunction which is at work in, in both cities. Because in Amsterdam there are hardly any, any cars, uh, the city is extremely dense, so you can just take a direct route. And directness is, is, is more important here. So that, that's what I found quite interesting, that although the cities are so different, um, you still see uh, kind of an interesting parallel in, in the ways people make their road choice. So that, that's for that. Um, what I also find quite striking is that um, why people ride their bike can be, uh, kind of the, the spatial practice of riding your bike can be influenced by different factors. So the, uh, geography works in a different way in both cities. Um, in, in Amsterdam, for example, a lot of people ride their bikes simply because there's no other options. Amsterdam is too small for cars, and then parking is really expensive and difficult. I also like riding, that's not the issue, but the city center is simply the most convenient. So basically, there's a lot, lots, there has been said a lot about identity and, and culture, but it's also simply the role of the built environment. And, and if a city is so dense and other options, other modalities are not functional, then you use a bike. So I found that quite interesting. Whereas in Portland, it has a pretty decent uh, bike infrastructure for American standards, but compared to Amsterdam, it's, it's well, I wouldn't say crap, because then I, I won't make a lot of friends, but it's, it's not very impressive to Dutch standards. That's, that's a fact. So, um, and, and that's what you see there, is that Portland is really a city with a, with a, a subculture that attracts a lot of people, what Richard Florida has called a creative class. So, and, and there you see that uh, there is a, a condition of a certain uh, minimum of bike infrastructure, but it has to be activated by a certain discourse, which in Portland is kind of the Portland mentality or subculture, uh, fixed gear culture is, is also quite relevant there, which kind of activates that function of uh, the physical environment. Um, the role of the car, that, that, that is kind of the thing that surprised me most, actually. Um, because me as a Dutchman, I could never think of the car being so dominant in people that ride their bike. Um, both in the experiences, but also in the, in the whole discourse, the, the car is omnipotent. So people that ride, ride, their, uh, ride their bike, deliberately feel that they're not being in a car. So riding a bike is juxtaposed against uh, driving a car. So that is kind of interesting because there you see on the one hand the spatial practices of being in a city where there are a lot of uh, difficult interactions with, with motorists. On the other hand, the dominant discourse or what John Urias called a system of automobiles which result in a certain experience. And um, I think this quote is quite revealing. It feels good to be outside, in the air, as you know, uh, constrained inside a 
vehicle. So there's really that juxtaposition, and a lot of people mentioned that. And uh, that also uh, results in a, in a type of solidarity, uh, social bonding among bicyclists. Um, when you bicycle every day and you know what it's like to be at risk during high traffic times of the day, or being at risk because of a driver who's not paying attention, and not looking for bicyclists, that does create a sense of solidarity with other bicyclists. And now we'll get, we'll get there. Um, Bicycling is in, in the Netherlands, it, it is hardly part of a subculture or an identity market. Only if you move up a couple of scalar levels to the national level, for example, then, then you see some of those notions. But whereas in Portland, where it's, uh, on the one hand, it's, there, there are less people riding their bike, on the other hand, experience are, um, experiences are more intense. So people are uh, experiencing the, the, the difficulty of coping with cars day by day, and that results in, in social bonding. And I think this is, this is a nice quote. There's just a glance or a wave. Hey, we're on the same team. So that kind of reflects how, how bicyclists have that kind of social cohesion, which is completely absent in Amsterdam. Where it's more, as this quote reveals, more chaotic. The bicycle atmosphere in Amsterdam is kind of, stand up for your own rights and be very careful. Because everyone's going its own way. It's chaotic, and people are not very willing to obey their rules. I think that's typically Amsterdam. I think motorists are having a hard time in Amsterdam to react to all the irregularities. So it's kind of the other way around. That's kind of interesting. It's not bicyclists who are having a hard time, it is motorists. So um, what does that result in policy implications? Um, I think it's very important to be very sensitive to the geo-historical context of the city when uh, attempting to increase bicycle use. A lot of processes, as I saw in Portland and Amsterdam, are path dependent. Certain decisions have been made in, in the past still influence uh, bicycle culture. So to change that, there's no royal road to, to truth. You really have to think of what, what has happened in the past, what is the path dependent process, and how can I, in this city, use insights of other contexts to apply that to my city. So I think that is pretty, pretty relevant. Secondly, um, the way bicycle infrastructure is interpreted is not universal or homogeneous. It's, it's different. That's uh, what I saw in Portland. There, there is the, dif the discourse, the discourse of in which automobility is dominant, for example, influences how you read a city. So that's really relevant when uh, building new bike paths or bike parking or whatever. You have to think of what is at stake in my city. What is the cultural dimension to bicycling in my city? Um, finally, um, combine uh, discursive and uh, physical elements. So that is related to an earlier argument. So think of what would happen if I build a bike lane as a separated cycle track, for example, and how does that relate to the context of this city. Future research, um, well, I think it's important, as I said, also for policy, be sensitive to the geo-historical context of your, of your city. So locate it within, within a wider history, within a wider geography. Don't, don't just relate it to a wider population. Um, scalar differentiation is very important too. Uh, there are different cultural factors that work at different scalar levels. You see, for example, what I saw is American car culture, which was dominant. Dutch national identity with regards to bicycling, but also factors which play out at the local level. So be very sensitive of that when researching bicycling. I found critical realism and interesting options to explore bicycling because it's sensitive to both the socially constructed nature of, of social phenomena but also to the causal power of material dimensions. But that's my take on it. Um, well, of course, I would be 
very interested to see similar studies, comparative case studies of cities in other contexts, in, in the UK, for example. I would be glad to see that. And, well, it would be nice, as I said, I don't see a lot of uh, cross-referencing between positive and more culturally oriented studies. It would be interesting if there would be more of a bridge between the two. But that's it for today. Thanks a lot.